I didn't expect it to bother me so much. I, when it was first happening, I was sort of like, I've been writing online for so many years. I can handle this. And then it really, I really had a hangover from it. And now I feel like, ah, you know, that it shit happens. Like, you know, this is the best book I've ever written. Heather Haberleski has been writing on the internet since the 1990s, starting with the earliest internet publication, Suck.com. Since then, she's been at Salon, The All, and The Cut at New York Magazine, where she wrote the much-loved advice column, Ask Polly. These days, Polly lives on Substack, along with a companion newsletter that Heather writes called Ask Molly. So when it comes to figuring out how to live as a writer online, Heather has seen it all, adapting along the way. She's also published four books, and the last one, Foreverland, came out last year. It's a marriage memoir. It's very funny. And when the New York Times published an excerpt of it last year, it came with the subheading, Do I hate my husband? Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. Well, that rubbed some people the wrong way, and an angry Twitter mob came after Heather relentlessly, harassing her as a husband hater for days. In this conversation, Heather takes me through what that experience was like and shares her thoughts on how social media is shaping writing and how she has a newfound ability to find romance, even in terrible situations. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Heather Haberleski. Heather, thanks very much for coming on The Active Voice. In 1996, you started a column and a comic that was called Filler for the satirical website Suck.com, which was one of the sort of great news websites at the time, even though it wasn't news, it was sort of magazine-style commentary. My, my first question is kind of very straightforward. What was it like being a writer on the internet in its earliest days? It was great. I mean, I was 25 when Suck hired me, when Joey and Carl hired me. And I was, at the time, I was an intern at The Red Herring. I don't know if you remember The Red yeah. Herring. St covering startups and technology companies. Yeah, yeah. So I would um, I would add up like the P over E ratios by my by hand. Because... Oh, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to explain <laughs> what that means for normal people. <laughs> price over expense. I mean, I don't even I can't say that it's like your stock price over earnings or something. Earnings. It... You're right. Yeah, expense. yeah. Well, I didn't really know what I was doing, and <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing was that um. You couldn't find out the information. You couldn't find out stock prices that easily. Like we had a, this big mainframe that you had to go on and look up numbers every day. And then we would print numbers in the red herring that would show up a week late. And people would hmm. read stock prices that were a week old, which is just mind blowing Wow, about now. But yeah, so I was an intern at the red herring. And then I started to just sort of explore the internet. This was 95 and I was kind of into Wired Magazine. I read about Mark Andreessen and Netscape and how the internet was going to go from being this nerd thing to being like a an appliance thing where everybody owned appliances that connected to the internet, you know, like the Jetsons, right? Yeah. Which sounded awesome. And, uh, but, I, you know, most of the, the internet was a wasteland. Most of the stuff on there was just uh, kind of like Coca-Cola had a website that had something dancing on it, you know, and that was empty. Like there were a lot of empty content free, you know, <laughs> it's like, it was like a ghost land. Like you get, it says Coca-Cola outside and you open the door and there's nothing inside, <laughs> not even any Coke. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, suck.com was this one column of text written by the smartest people you've ever read before. At least that's how it felt. And mm-hmm. they they were people who were skeptical of the entire internet and everyone working in the .com mm-hmm. uh, realm. Well ahead of their time on that front. Yeah, they were really, I mean, you know, it's like the internet was just born in the way we know it now, and they were immediately uh, full of spite for it. Um, (laughs) And I was just a a very cynical, very young, very kind of angry person, and this appealed to me perfectly. So when they, you know, I read everything on Suck and loved it, and then when they announced that they had sold, I think they'd... I can't remember if at first they got investment from Hotwired and Wired or if they were purchased by them and then, I don't know. But anyway, they were hiring and I was like, I have to get a job at suck.com. They hired me as an assistant editor, even though, I mean, I told them I was a copy editor at <laughs> the Red Herring. This is bad. This is like a my George Santos moment. Yeah, come on. Let's uh, let's see all the fraud. Yeah, you know, I I did do a lot of stuff at the Red Herring. It wasn't like, but I, d- I did not know really what a copy editor even did. I mean, I guess I was kind of proofing some stuff, so I was sort of a copy editor. But I had to ask a friend of mine who'd gone to J school, like, what's a copy editor? You know, <laughs> what, what kind of a test am I going to have to take? So I was hired to copy edit Suck. I was not great at that, but they also hired an illustrator and I started to collaborate with the illustrator on, they gave me a throwaway column called filler that was just supposed to be little bits from the from different magazines, little snippets. And, you know, I was just supposed to be like a lowly scrub sifting through the news um, and pulling out interesting things. And I immediately said, let's write, write a cartoon together to Terry Colon, who's incredibly talented. And he at first was like, no, that sounds too exhausting. I don't want to do it. But he had to because he worked for them full time. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, whatever. I didn't force him to do it. But we slowly but surely started to write this cartoon called Filler that was mostly just cartoons. And it was just like a dream job. It was awesome. I wrote about my coworkers, my bosses. Um, they were all younger than me. I was 25. I think Joey and Carl were 24. Anna Marie Cox worked in the office also. She was 24, I think, at the time. And I made fun of them. And... Terry wrote, Terry drew beautiful little cartoons of their faces saying dumb things as scripted by me. And it was amazing. And they all loved being made fun of because that was the strange profile of someone who would write for a thing called or create a thing called Mm -hmm. suck.com. So it was just, uh, it was awesome. So I did that for five years and it was, um, it was great. The people who were online were very techy, obviously. And you, you, you would not have been, I assume. You're kind of an outsider in that sense. Did I have a what did I have? I think I had a. I didn't have a quadra. I had a, like a centrist. Do you remember what those? No were? idea. They were like the big. It was like an apple with like a. It was like a the size of a pizza box, kind of. Okay. A weird big flat. I was pretty into computers at the time. I mean, I wasn't like a programmer, but for the times. I had been working for um, a technical writer for a bunch of years and I guess about three years and she was pretty tech savvy. And so I was, I got into Wired through her and I was doing, um, well, it was called desktop publishing. It was really just glorified typing, right? Yeah. (laughs) 
but I illustrated stuff. I was lo- kind of learning PageMaker, and um, I made little movies on something. I don't know what some kind of I'm early, you know, prehistoric iMovie oh, thing. Cool. Like I identified with the world of technology by then for sure. But you know, once money came in, you know, just like we've seen, you know, I don't need to rehash history, but mm. once big money came into it, everything got crazy and. It was mm-hmm. strange. I mean, San Francisco was very weird at that time. It went from being kind of like a grungy, kind of dumpy hipster heaven, mm-hmm. you know, to being like some kind of strange, you know, cyber cafe. You know, everything mm-hmm. was cyber. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a very, very interesting time. Did you feel like there's a sense of possibility, like working for, for Suck.com in those early days leading up into the dot-com bubble? or boom, however you want to describe it. Did you think I'm at the the forefront here? This is going to be like, this is a this is pioneer territory? Or, or, was, or were you feeling something else? I should have probably felt, I mean, th- this is kind of the sad thing about life. And I, maybe it's just the sad thing about being a skeptic. I probably should have found it incredibly romantic, like given what the internet is today, Right. There was a way that just the jackassery of it all was so hard to get around. You know, we'd go to meetings and Louis Rosetto, the head of Wired, would hold forth in a very, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but just like visionary loaded boomer kind of way <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, the future and we were living in the future now. And, you know, it was just hard to, you know, as a 25-year-old not to roll your eyes at that and say, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, it all sounded like a, a money ploy to me, you know, mm-hmm. but I, you know, it, it, the truth is that I was, I went from being a temp mm-hmm. and then also being like a, a typist essentially to having this job where I could just make jokes about culture, internet culture mm-hmm. and make fun of my coworkers and make fun of the hipsters in San Francisco. And it was, Amazing. There is something about that first, the energy of like startup energy, really, or just the energy of that time where you don't really know some, where what direction something's going to move in and it's exciting and no one knows about it yet. I mean, but also just the energy of people who are like, grab, who gravitate towards that kind of a moment without necessarily, you know, who, who use it to create something that they believe in or love or find exciting or, you know, or even that they're, you know, a little bit grumpy about in the case of Sug, like (laughs) it was, it was great to be in that pocket where you could, where you were just surrounded by people who had a lot of creative energy, essentially. um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of like uh, ideas, you know, smart, weird, young people everywhere. It was great. That part of it was great. It's sad that I was such, such a, um, broken, dysfunctional person at the time. And I couldn't quite commune with my surroundings as much as, as well as I probably um, would have today. And do you think that sucks skepticism of all that surrounded it in the sort of internet business and the internet industry was proven right? Was it prescient or um, was it uh, missing something? Uh, It was dead, dead right. Dead, 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 dead center, <laughs> hit the arrow straight in the middle of the target. The founders of Suck, Joey Enough and Carl Stedman, used to say, sell out early and often, which was a funny, you know, at the time, I mean, it sounds almost like an actual way of being, um, but they were being facetious. But 
Uh, at the time, you know, we were Gen X and we selling out was like the worst thing you could do. I mean, people were really against monetization of anything at that time. We're kind of in some ways have returned to that. But um, but sell out early and often is actually in our world, pretty goddamn good advice. Right. And actually, I don't want to jump ahead too much. I'm sure we'll talk about it through the rest of the conversation. But your career has seen a lot of these uh, things come and go. So this suck and then. Uh, sell on the all. There are these things that you've seen through your career that have had moments of great highs and then have either disappeared or have sunk to a different sort of place or sort of moved to a different place, let's put it in more generous terms. And I guess that must be, I don't know if, if wearying might be the term, but it cr- must create a lot of flux and sort of insecurity in a, in a career writer's world. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, I think the hard part of being a writer and in particular being a writer who was a staff writer for years and who liked the structure of having an actual job and a boss um, for years. The tough part is you start a job and you get to do whatever they, whatever reason they hired you, you might have a lot of freedom in the beginning. And then some market force takes over because it's because you're a writer, right? And you're, you're, what you're selling is theoretically or whatever, becoming cheaper and cheaper, which is something that, you know, obviously Substack is a piece of trying to solve that problem. But yeah, being, being, a, <laughs> being someone who, uh, whose job is, to, it's not just that you're, that you have to give up and find another job or that you have to like, when you get laid off, find another, something else to do. It's that your job itself changes shape so much when you're a writer. I mean, you know, Salon is a great place to work. It's just mm-hmm. SEO at the time, you know, chasing traffic, all yeah. of the different iterations of, you know, Google wants this, Facebook wants that, you know, the things that, that the, the stupid ringers that we've been pushed through, through um, because of the various shapes that the internet has taken obviously put pressures on what you can do. And, and, you know, the, the, the fear, the biggest fear there is just, I don't know how to make a product that's good. I can only, I can only make what I make and make it great and then hope that people like it. But you've managed, you've managed to reinvent yourself throughout these different phases of the internet and thrive. You know, you've gone from making sort of little puppet videos to writing advice columns to writing books or, or do you see it that way? I said thrive and you said you pulled a funny face and then mm. I wonder what your No, I was just thinking. Is. That's my ugly, fu- my, that's my ugly, funny thinking face, Hamish. <laughs> Sorry. I don't don't I just... describe my faces to the audience. <laughs> so is it right to say that you've thrived through reinvention? Do you feel something else? Um, I would say that I've thrived through getting closer and closer to the center of what I have to offer the world, if that makes sense. I mean, I've definitely reinvented my whole career many times over, but each time it was a process of either doing something that, oops, no, this is a huge mistake. I've done a few things like that. Or saying, you know, the thing I really love the most about this job I'm already doing is this one piece of it. And if I could just do that part, my life would be better. And so in some ways I'm kind of narrowing down the pieces of things I liked. I always liked writing jokes um, in filler. I always, I loved the psychological aspects of analyzing TV. I, it's, it, you know, it's sort of like 
finding, I think finding the things that you're the most, you know, turned on by and obsessed with is, you know, at the center of how you kind of keep the life and color in your writing. Advice for me was that it wasn't so much that I thought I have the best advice to give everyone alive. (laughs) It was more just here is a structure that I can easily fill. If someone writes me a letter, I can easily answer it. It, Will I give the best advice in the world? Not necessarily, but it will lead to interesting ideas and insights and, you know, an examination of human problems. You know, it'll Mm -hmm. be fun and maybe someone, maybe I'll learn something. Maybe the reader will learn something. And advice is something you started on your own before, like after Suck and kind of contemporaneously with Salon, but before the all, right? Yeah. Well, when Suck was on its last legs, they needed to fill up. They couldn't afford to pay any freelance writers. And I was on staff and I wanted to keep my staff job. So I started writing. I mean, this is another example of, you know, your job changes constantly. Mm -hmm. So I started, I said, I'll write an advice column called Dear Tiny Little Penis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> just like, for the tech industry right <laughs> yes it really was it was very hostile a hostile hostile anti-man advice column it was just like you're all idiots and i hate you mm-hmm. but it was uh you know just condescending and but cheerful uh well when suck went okay when suck went under i started to i created the rabbit blog it was just like a and I wrote advice on the rabbit blog also. So I, I wrote the, I made up the first letter on the rabbit blog and then people sent me letters from then on. It was just like, okay, here's the kind of letter I want. I got like a hundred hits every day. And I was like, yes, hundred. Yeah. Like I, that was, I considered that extremely successful at the time. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had done a jokey version of advice. And then when I, they all caught my eye and I was like, I got to write something for the all. This is like the best site on online. I pitched them an advice column and they said yes. So that was when, um, and I I expected it to be jokey and it turned into, it kind of slowly grew into something more serious. And that's Dear Polly, right? This is the origin of Dear Polly. Yeah. Ask Polly is the name of it. Sorry. I don't know what I'm thinking. What a disgusting mistake. (laughs) I've got it written down right in front of me. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about the all? Because it occupies quite a treasured position in the minds of certain people who are online and reading a lot in the, 2010s basically and it's gone away for various reasons that mostly have to do with sort of changing business models of the internet i think and social media but can you describe why you thought the all was such a special place when you encountered it and then started writing for it yeah the way that the all was utterly divorced from current events when you write for magazines newspapers and online magazines you always have to have like a timely hook at the beginning of anything. So even if you were writing a personal essay, it had to be, you know, the fact that everything everywhere all the time or all at once has just earned an Oscar nomination should indicate to us that existential angst is a central blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the oppression of that constantly having to like tie anything interesting you have to say into just the conveyor belt of consumer products that are coming coming out is just so tiring and boring. Mm-hmm. So the exciting thing about the all was they did not uh, fall prey to that at all. They were just like, we're going to have reviews of the sky by Tom Skoka, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, you know, I think that Corey Sika is really interesting. It's like, I think that he honestly 
approached people whose writing he liked and just said, give me anything. And people mm-hmm. came up with great stuff. I mean, I think Corey kind of just loved the sound of, of, of conviction in, in a piece of writing. And it almost didn't matter what the writing was about. Mm-hmm. Everything that you'd read on that site for a long time was just uh, funny, smart, and strange. And you just the kind of thing that you could not find anywhere else. And why could you not find it anywhere else? And then why did it thrive? Probably not financially. Most things weren't thriving financially as blog businesses. But why did it thrive in that particular format? Um, you know, a, a basically a blog or a daily website with frequent posts. I think it thrived because it wasn't, there was nothing really mean-spirited about it. I mean, even though I'm all for mean-spirited at times, and yet it was still had just such a palpable edge. I mean, the, the, it sort of like felt like a countercultural destination. Yeah, you know, like when you're when you're fed up with everything else. I mean, and it's possible to be fed up with even you know, Gawker at times and Deadspin at times, and you know, a lot of stuff that's adjacent to the all. So there was mm-hmm. something about the all that was different. That it wasn't looking, it wasn't trying to make a splash ever. It wasn't trying to, you know was never pandering. The people who wrote in the comments on the all were always so, so smart, just the Mm -hmm. smartest, most interesting people, emotionally aware. I mean, I can't think of that many places where that sort of good feeling is matched with the words, be less stupid at the top of the (laughs) website. You know, it's like, it's an interesting, it's an interesting duality. And actually, Polly kind of formed out of that, you know, I mean, Ask Polly, and I feel like a lot of my writing since I wrote for the all has been, it's like, dare you know, it's it, the idea is daring to be a full person on the page. In other words, to be earnest sometimes and also be cynical and also be effusive and also be bitter, you know, out in the open. When the all shut down eventually, it was around about 2018, I think, Gia Tomatina wrote a piece about it for the New Yorker and she lamented its demise as the end of freedom and fun for writing on the internet. What do you think of that statement? Yeah, I mean, wow, that's sad. It kind of was, right? I mean, I can't think of why why aren't there more things like the all? The things that I've loved a lot suck the all. Gawker at times fed that need, Grantland. Mm. I just never understand why they can't be resurrected. I mean, I always thought that Suck would make a second, you know, have a second life at some point, be resurrected. And it's strange because people, you know, they treasure these things and they don't want them to go away. And somehow when things are kind of small and edgy and strange, they always seem to dry up and blow away. Mm. Whereas um, why is it that all these kind of bland shiny magazines and bland websites kind of trudge along these zombie, <laughs> these yeah. zombie things that have the same kind of dull, you know, here five perfumes to try kind of voice, you yeah. know, repeated ad infinitum. I don't understand why stuff like that uh, survives and, and great stuff dies. I don't really get, I don't really get it. Obviously I don't completely understand the economics of it, but yeah, there's so much room for, there's so much room in the best publications for more invention and play and, and, and weirdness, I think. And I think that the culture is hungry for it too right now. Totally. We, we see a lot of that 
on Substack. There's both the appetite and demand for it and now the production of it. But just for the sake of not turning this into a big Substack ad, which I never intend to do, let's just pretend Substack doesn't exist and social media does exist. And I feel so alone suddenly. I feel so poor alone. <laughs> we all feel so bereft. <laughs> I hate this exercise. <laughs> but for a while, you know, well, pre-2017, that was the case. And um, social media, people was occupying everyone's mind and starting to infect people's minds, perhaps. And the word that Gia Tolentino used in that New Yorker piece about the all's demise was freedom or like freedom disappearing. And for me, it seems like, what do you call it? When it seems wrong that social media should result in the curtailment of freedom. Yeah. Or like like it wipes away things that were good at enabling freedom, um, but the freedom to be weird in the case of the all, or, you know, weird and smart and, you know, niche. I mean, I think it's confusing, right? Because people find interesting things through social media. It's almost like an issue of when the room, the auditorium becomes too big and filled with voices. You start to feel self-conscious about making sounds when everyone is in the room. Or you're just, you're only moved to make aggressive, you know, debating sounds and not you're not moved to like speak from the heart anymore. Right. Obviously, there's there are ways that our socializing and our, our way of interacting with each other has to evolve past the kind of echo chamber of Twitter and the just dead, dead, dull... <laughs> dead dull closets of Facebook and the, the beautifully shot overpacked uh, unaffordable closets of Instagram. Mm -hmm. I mean, TikTok is obviously kind of interesting and lively and full of promise in its own way. I don't know. I feel like there's something about, you know, volume that has to be addressed. There have to be, you know, it's like everybody moves to Mastodon and then they're like, this doesn't feel the same. Not everyone's listening over here and everyone's really polite and I don't like that. <laughs> it just feels smaller and it's it's kind of nice, but it's sort of like, do you want to do you want to go to the stadium or do you want to go to like the book club? Right. I mean, something's got to take hold. It surprises me that there aren't more just more social media startups that actually people that take hold and are beautifully designed. Yeah. Just the fact that they're so ugly, first of all, like so many of them are so ugly is such a bummer. But also, like, why aren't we trying new things all the time? Yeah. So we've only seen one version of social media. Um, and it would be interesting to see what the other versions could be with different models, with different systems designs, because I think there's a relatively good chance that some of those will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what the next big thing is. It seems like they're just, you know, we have such a sour view of social media right yeah. now. And also just like a frightened view of it, I think. And you you kind of wrote through this transition when you were writing Ask Polly for New York Magazine. Did you notice anything through the time uh, where you, from when you started that at New York Mag to when you concluded at New York Magazine just a couple of years ago? Were there any changes in the in the atmosphere that affected the way you wrote, you wrote or felt about writing that column? Um, yeah, when I started it, it felt... Uh, like I could do anything and go anywhere and it would be fine. I mean, part of that was my boss, Stella Bugby. She's at the New York Times now. She was just into anything I did and was happy to see me digress and write, you know, a column that was all about the band Yes, including links to footage of old footage of Yes. You know, it's like, here's my advice. Look at, watch this video. And then, you know, 
So I, I could be very weird. And in some ways, the internet was weirder then too, right? Because the all was still around and the tone of New York Magazine at large was very irreverent and fun and strange. And they, they've mostly maintained that, but the, but the, the feeling of specifically, and this isn't, uh, this isn't New York Magazine's issue, the feeling specifically of writing personal advice against the backdrop of this social media realm where almost anything you say can, can and will be used against you was pretty intense for a while there. There was a time when it became extremely difficult to be a middle-aged white woman telling people how to live. You know, it was just like hard not to be cynical about yourself mm. and cynical about your, your difficult not to just look at your own work through the eyes of the most skeptical reader, um, which I think is the danger of spending too much time on social media is that you take on you read so many dyspeptic, negative, annoyed, chafed, outraged things, and it adds up to, and you also just read like, nothing but this is good, nothing but that. I mean, the moral universe of social media is extremely stringent and strange and, and unforgiving. And so it's pretty damn hard to just be a regular flawed person up against that kind of backdrop. Mm. Yeah, it became hard to do that. And in some ways, when I moved to Substack, there was a feeling of now I'm really flying without a net and maybe that's what's best for me. Like maybe it's time for me to trust my own instincts again. Mm. And you, you've got two things on Substack. is Ask Polly, which is uh, the column that started at the All and had a grand, a grand life at New York Magazine and now stands alone on Substack and has a community around it. And you've got Ask Molly, which is Polly's alter ego, or started off as Polly's alter ego, where you got to be a little bit more unhinged and take a few more risks with voice and tone and that kind of thing. But what were you, what were you feeling and what were you thinking of when you started Molly? And then what does that become? Well, Molly started before on Substack before Polly, as as uh, as you'll remember, it was uh, it was I was still at New York Magazine, and I and I, but I kind of wanted to start a newsletter because I had more to say than just what Polly had to say, and so. Um, Ask Molly originated as it was supposed to be Polly's evil twin, Molly, who gave really bad advice and <laughs> was nasty and mean-spirited and funny above all else. And then the pandemic hit and it became super weird. And then I went through some personal stuff and it kind of filtered its way in there in strange, strange prose. And now Molly is more like... Um, kind of like personal essays with some occasional weirdness, but mostly like humorous and humorous personal essays, I'd say, is the meat of Molly now. But it was a way of having, you know, I was, my main gig was this very earnest, uh, soft thing. And I really had a whole side of my personality that wasn't really allowed to come out and play. And Molly gave that person a lot, that side of me, a lot of room to mess around, fuck shit up. The people who've stuck with Molly this long, you know, they've been through a lot of different crazy voices, actually. And so they're pretty tolerant. Do you feel close to them? Yeah, I love Molly readers. I love Polly readers, too, for different reasons. But they're, and they're, they're not a mutually exclusive group. But, um, but, you know, Molly, that's a super patient subset of, <laughs> subset of humanity. I feel very much empowered to write crazy stuff for Molly and 
to experiment and figure out. I mean, I use Molly as a way of figuring out what I want to write, what kind of, like I'm right now I'm kind of trying to workshop my next book through Molly and it's going well. How do books fit into your life and why do you write them? Damn, that's a, such a good question. I'll put the, the the books that you've written in the show notes, but from 2010 through last year with Foreverland, which is a story about your marriage, you've been publishing books regularly. I mean, I love books. Uh, it's, an, it, you know, as someone who writes online constantly, it's so nice to have a thing in your hands um, with a cover. I, I read a fair amount and I love to hold a book in my hands. The writing of books is, you know, especially when you get pretty good at newsletters that are about, I don't know, a thousand to 2,500 words in my case, writing a whole book seems increasingly intimidating, even though I've written a lot of books. It's sort of like the, I think the big, the hardest thing is just what is a subject that is going to capture my interest over the course of a year or two. Yeah. And so I have I have a subject that I'm pretty obsessed with that I think is going to work well for me that I've just sort of stumbled on in the past month that I'm like, okay, this is my thing. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I'm really excited about writing a book again. Books, you know, but the the fact of the matter is, is that if you have newsletters and you've written online for a long time, books just feel almost ir- ridiculous. <laughs> the timeline of them, the way you sell them, mm-hmm. the way you slowly plot along, you know, strategizing about how to promote them. It just all feels like, you know, traveling back a hundred years in time. It doesn't feel like it makes a lot of sense. And also the fact that, you know, three people review your book and one of them hated it. And that actually does determine the outcome of how how many people are going to read or buy your book. Mm. Um, The economics of books is rough. So So what, what makes it worth doing? I think just completing doing something that's longer and complete and has like a, a larger arc is very satisfying. It's like, especially because the stuff I write is so short, anyone I meet at all for the rest of my life, if they were actually very interested in me, I could say, go get the audiobook of Foreverland and you'll learn more than you ever really wanted, <laughs> needed or wanted to know about me and it's sort of it's sort of nice to um i don't know it's it's kind of horrifying in some ways to be that person who's like here's my entire personality and you know in a book but but it's also just you know my i write because i'm compelled to share what life feels like for me and when i can pull that off when i when i can really express you know how bewildering and amazing life can be in one big document, you know, that's, it's thrilling. It feels like it, it, it's a form of connection. You know, you're imagining a person who could understand you essentially. So it's like this big, it's like you're having this love affair with an invisible reader where you're mm. just like, I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to give you everything. You know, you surrender your, soul to this Mm. dispatch and it's intimate. It feels intimate. There's something about writing a book that feels like you're writing love letters to one person. That's how, that's how a good book, you know, if you're really engaged in the process of it, it feels that good, Mm -hmm. you know, at times when you're writing it. So that's just, it's just a, a deep, deeply satisfying endeavor. So what was it like to 
pour your soul out into the page like that with Foreverland. Very personal memoir. Very, very amusing. Very perceptive uh, takes on marriage and life and having kids and all that sort of stuff. And then for it to generate a particular reaction. And in this in this case, I saw two things. One was uh, Walter Kern wrote a not great review of it in New York Times. And then there was the social media reaction to the excerpt of your book running in the New York Times magazine, where that piece had been framed with, do I hate my husband? Yes, I hate my husband. And that g- generated a lot of strong feelings. And I wonder what it was like being on the receiving end of all of that after going through this big soul soul pouring out process of making a book like that? Well, it was strange. I mean, I think that when I was in it, in the middle of it, it just seemed like, yeah, of course, you know, I wrote about marriage. You know, I published in the New York Times the chapter about anger, you know, and it was a funny, I think one of the funnier chapters in the book and people didn't experience it. A lot of people did not experience it that way at all. I loved the headline, do I hate my husband? Yes, definitely. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, it, I thought that it was clear that it was a joke based on, yeah, sure, definitely, of course, you know, mm-hmm. I think it was the subtitle or whatever. I thought it was obvious that it was a comedic uh, exercise, but, you know, that's not how it ended up getting processed by, you know, the New York Post who, you know, they published, uh, wife hates husband calls marriage insane. Um, in some ways that was like a really fun moment in my life to discover that, you know, and in some ways it was just disheartening because, you know, you make something that's pretty complicated and people decide they decide that they understand what you've made without actually reading it. Mm -hmm. I saw an interview with Bill Maher where he talks about he describes to William Shatner this awful woman who wrote page after page after page in her book about how much she hates her husband. And mm-hmm. he describes it like he's flipping through the pages of my book, just reading about how much I hate Bill, my husband. And it's like, you you know, you read a headline in the New York Times, so maybe you read half the article. And now right. you're representing my book as if I wrote an entire, I mean, there are people, probably most people, if you talked about anyone who, oh yeah, I remember that article or I remember that woman, maybe 80% of them would tell you, yeah, she wrote a book about how she hates the shit out of her husband. She's a that bad lady that did that. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you get a firsthand experience of that, I mean, so many people have that kind of experience where they become the main character and everybody thinks they're losers um, and we all do it to each other. But when you have the experience, you know, and you've been writing for 27 years and you've written all kinds of different things and the people who know your work know, you know, your sense of humor and they get it. And they're just like, what, what's happening to you? Why are you being misunderstood? It's kind of hard to recover from in the long term, like the immediate flush of like, Ooh, you know, the book is getting attention. This has got to go well. Right. By the summer, it was sort of like, uh, you know, what 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 happened? What was that? And was it, you know, did I make mistakes? Like, was it stupid to publish the most snide chapter of the whole book in, in the New York Times? You know, I mean, I, there's another book that's about a crush, and I someone I, Time Magazine wanted to run that chapter, and I decided it was bad out of context, and 
and I didn't want to run it. So it's just like you make these weird calls and then, you know. Yeah, I suspect that a great many, if not the vast, vast majority of the people who are jumping on the criticism bandwagon around that time didn't read anything other than the headline of that piece. Because the excerpt is is like, it's not that long an excerpt, but it's quite Mm -mm. clearly much more subtle and nuanced than, oh, I hate my husband, marriage is bad. It wasn't saying that at all, actually. No. But people are like, they spotted the opportunity for the meme and they've, uh, they've jumped on the meme with gusto and they branded you with that for a bit. How has it affected you when, in, spe- specifically as like a writer? Well, I mean, I think there was a time when I actually was pushed into this space where I was like, I'm not writing likable things anymore. I'm just going to write totally crazy, dyspeptic, negative, strange, wild stuff about just countercultural strangeness. And, you know, I, I had a period over the summer where I was like, thinking, you know, my next thing is going to, I had an idea for a novel that was extremely dark and, (laughs) and I was, you know, and I was just like, you know, I could kind of, I felt like, well, Ask Polly might not last that much longer. I'm just, I'm I'm becoming a new kind of person, a new kind of writer. And maybe I'm just going to write like really dark stuff and weird stuff. And that people about like angry women that people will just naturally hate. And I can't do, I can't be, you know, an advice columnist and also write the weird shit I want to write. And, you know, it, it's that kind of turned out to be a reactive state that I was in where I kind of felt like the world's never going to accept the complexity of an extremely intense emotional woman who is honest, right? And now I'm just like, you know, whatever. I've always been honest. I've always written funny stuff and dark stuff and optimistic things. And, but, you know, I've used the word joy more times than I should, (laughs) but I write all kinds of stuff. I'm a, I'm a complicated person and I'm going to continue to write uh, complicated things. And, you know, the world is going to continue to be a place where you write nuanced things and people reduce it to one word. And that's never going to change. Probably it will only get worse with the internet the way it is. And that's just a reality of being alive right now. Right. So I think that I'm kind of I've recovered basically. Like I didn't expect it to bother me so much. I, when it was first happening, I was sort of like, I've been writing online for so many years. I can handle this. And then it really, I really had a hangover from it. And now I feel like, ah, you know, that it shit happens. Like, you know, this is the best book I've ever written. I think it's great. I'm very proud of it. And you can't really ask for more than being able to write a book that you really love and feeling proud of it. I mean, if the world misunderstands you or whatever, understands you and doesn't like you, sees you perfectly clearly and can't fucking stand what they see, you know, that's, that's okay. That has to be okay. It feels like it wasn't the world that misunderstood you. It feels like a, a common social media phenomenon where they don't care who's on the other end of the the stick. They don't care what the actual subject matter of the thing they're criticizing is. They just want to be part of this stone throwing exercise. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, I think that when it happens to other writers, I sort of say, you can't take that person. You can't actually take that personally or seriously. It's just a sound that the world makes, but when it happens to you, it's easy to get snagged on it. Cause you still have to go to the blank page and say, this is who I am. I mean, I write <laughs> stuff that's honest. I don't, I don't like to write things that don't feel, that feel insincere. I cannot stand to make myself seem better than I am. I hate mm-hmm. that. 
Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, luckily my husband doesn't mind me not making him seem better. He thinks that I actually make him seem better than he is. <laughs> if only the world knew. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's great. I, I think that, you know, but, I, but it, that's not, you know, my calling in life is not to like seem like a great person. My calling is to make the way life feels for me, make a accurate representations of that. And, and in ways that people can understand and touch and relate to in ways that are soothing to them. You know, I mean, it's not like everything is just a big pacifier, but the best art I think is soothing um, because it reminds you of your, the best parts of yourself and sometimes the worst parts. Yeah. That's always been my experience reading you. It's not that you're selling me a phony dream is that you're selling, you're saying real things. And in those real things, I can recognize bits of my life too. Yeah. And I mean, having a sense, you know, without a sense of humor at all gets boring. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the hardest part of going through something where you're self-conscious about what you have to offer is that you lose your sense of humor about that. You're just another jackass on the planet doing whatever, you know, you can, when you start taking yourself too seriously, it's, you're in danger of writing some of the world's worst prose. How do you pick yourself up again to go and promote the book now that the paperback's about to come out, given that you had this rough experience that was kind of detached from the book, but, you know, undeniably inseparable from it as well? Well, you know, I like talking. (laughs) 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 If people are going to ask me questions and listen to me, you know, I'll talk. I'm a a show off and I'm happy to talk about, I mean, I'm just, I'm really proud of this book and it's easy to, it's easy to talk about what I like about this book, the ideas in it. um, I don't know, all of it. So it's not too, it's not too difficult. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in a really lucky place in my career. Like I'm doing, I'm writing about whatever I feel like writing about. I'm not taking my cues from what other people want me to write about. I mean, it's completely luxurious and amazing. So Mm -hmm. I really don't have anything to complain about at all, honestly. So you said you're workshopping the next book through Ask Molly. Do you allow yourself to talk about the subjects or are you going to stay mum about that? No, I'll, I'll talk about it. You know, last year, I think partially out of the kind of desperation of being in the lull after a book and also just feeling kind of like the floor got pulled out from under me in a weird way after working on this book for so many years. Um, and then I also moved across the country from LA to North Carolina. Uh, and so like all of these things were kind of in flux and this, the, the kind of one thing that kept me feeling good was this idea that life could be deeply romantic, even when everything felt terrible and that you could, you know, I, I started to get obsessed about what is it that makes life feel romantic? And what is it that, what is, what kinds of ideas and feelings and sensations are we attracted to because they're romantic and why, what is it, what, what is romance, you know? Um, so I started to, um, I've started to write these essays on that theme and they're not about romantic love at all. They're really about living in a way that makes you feel, you know, living in a way that you've, that, that keeps you connected to the world and to your best self or not, not best self, your core, your most passionate core. And so 
uh, Ask Molly, today I posted one that is about taking voice lessons. I started taking voice lessons over Zoom. And there's just something there. And I don't think I use the word romantic in the essay at all, but there's something so kind of delicious and romantic about doing something that is just so hard and seems so purposeless and you're bad at. And then just slowly but surely feeling like you actually are learning and you don't even know really how or why you're learning, but your voice, like my voice has changed since I started my voice lessons a few months ago. And it's just amazing. You said that the, you wrote a line in that piece that I think will stay with me for a very long time, which is that there's a point at which your voice starts to break because you can't hit those notes. And your teacher tells you to lean into the breaks, like lean into that bit where it starts to break down. And because that's when you like, you sort of discover what you're capable of or discover, you know, where the, where the lines are. And um, yeah, like the idea of thinking about that is something that you don't have to be scared of or worried about that you can, you can go at it and learn something is quite a powerful image. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that as a metaphor for everything, right? Like paying attention to the things that you notice and feel when you're in crisis or when you're, when you're feeling terrible and actually using that as helpful information or inspiration. I mean, this morning I woke up and I felt pretty bad. I don't know why. And I was, you know, I just didn't get enough sleep. And I was like, today I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to just pay attention to the things that I think are irritating and I'm just going to lean into them and see, you know, pay, pay very, very close attention until I can actually enjoy something that's you know, annoying me or pissing me off. And it actually worked really quickly. I feel like, you know, discovering new ways of being, of being happy in spite of a lot of things that are aggravating you is sort of like my, you know, it's the most romantic thing of all, basically to be able to like, you know, surrender yourself to what is and see the beauty in it. Do you think people go to advice writers, columnists, in search of wisdom. And perhaps you have quite a lot of wisdom as the advice writer. I know you have some, but I bet I bet you have an experience of kind of like learning wisdom. The more you write these things, the more experiences you respond to. What's that like? It's great. And the only way it happens is if I accept that I don't know much going into every single day that I try to write the column. The most interesting thing about the process of having written this, you know, this advice column for 10 years is that the answers become more and more simple over time. When I first wrote Ask Polly, it was like, well, you know, it was much more like a guide to navigating a fucked up world. And it was sort of like, you have to avoid people like this and you got to make sure you don't go near people like this and you got to, you know, and then if you're prone to this, you got to watch out and you can't be this way and you can't be this way. And it really was like a classic, even though it was fun and funny and, and, uh, and a lot of old columns I think are like some of the all time grades, but there was this underlying sense that you have to manage yourself really carefully and micromanage yourself just to live in this impossible world. And I think that like more than anything else, Polly has moved from that kind of like, you're navigating a maze. Let me help you try to get through it 
And it's kind of transformed and evolved into this thing that is much more about just staying open to reality as it is. Um, it's become a much more kind of Buddhist <laughs> exercise. Yeah. I think one of the, the, the bummer things about the, the internet is that, you know, there's so much information, so much instruction and everybody's trying to get it right. And there's so much feeling of like, you're looking into this little porthole at the whole world and all these people have things that you want that you don't have yet. It's so easy to feel like invisible and small in today's, you know, in, in life today. And it's so important to remind people that they already have a whole world of sensation and, and joy inside them that they just have to access by allowing reality to be what it is. I mean, it sounds way too squishy within the context of a longer column. I think, you know, it's, I, 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 most of the stuff I say is not that reducible to like a bullet point list. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think that the, the column has taught me to be a different kind of person than I used to be. Okay. Another nice thing to, to finish on. How about you recommend some other writers on Substack who you're with, you think are worth paying attention to? <sighs> I have a lot of people I read on Substack, but the, I would say, okay, the, the newsletter that I read the most is Today in Tabs by Rusty Foster. Um, it reminds me of Suck. Mm. You know, when I first bumped into Rusty's writing, I was like, oh, whatever. He's just doing this Suck thing. You know, I, you know when you kind of like, you just, someone hits you at the wrong age. I mean, it wasn't even, I don't even know if I read anything. I was just like, oh, that guy thinks he's Suck.com, that motherfucker. You know, like <laughs> competitive, dumb reaction to things that seem like they might be good, but you're t too good for them. Bad superiority complex, inferiority complex behavior. Mm -hmm. But I remember thinking today in tabs, whatever. And then I started reading it. I can't remember when, maybe like three years ago. And I was like, oh my God, this is so good. So I, you know, if I don't manage to, especially if I'm like in too bad a mood to look at the actual newspaper, I'm like, I cannot handle what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. You read Rusty's take on the world and his jokes. And it's just like, it makes it, it's like a, it's like everything is covered in a, the most awesome like sugar coating with spices. It's just great. The other thing that I read really regularly is um, the real Sarah Miller. Right. You recommended Sarah to Substack and yeah, she's an amazing writer. That's, that's right. Well, she, I found her, she wrote for the all. That's how I found her writing. She's one of the funniest people I know. She's, I don't think she'll mind me saying a real weirdo <laughs> in, in the best sense of the word. And, you know, her writing is so effortlessly real and interesting. She writes just, she can write about just like walking her dog and it's always interesting. And then I read Hung Up by Hunter Harris also. I love her writing. She reminds me of all the, just, she's just the cream of the crop when it comes to like pop cultural, you know, coverage. Kind of like the Today and Tabs of uh, TV coverage and movie coverage. Right. and then. I love Eugene Carroll. I love Bad Reads with uh, Lauren Huff. Blackbird Spy Plane is hilarious, and I enjoy it. I don't read it quite as much as the other stuff. Cintra Wilson has a newsletter. I can't remember what her newsletter is called, but we'll link to that too, I guess, maybe at the end we'll, of this. She's we'll find great. the official name. We could even superimpose your voice saying the name 
into the audio afterwards. Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) What does she write about? Well, she writes crazy, crazy things about her experiences. And she also just writes about how stupid celebrity culture is. She's like just a very uh, interesting, it's so hard to describe because she's just like a snarky, hilarious, again, weirdo. She's she's brilliant. I love her. Um, I used to see her as kind of a rival because she wrote for Salon when I wrote for Suck. And I was like, she thinks she's so great. It's always those people that you encounter as like, uh, she thinks she's the shit. And then slowly but surely you're like, oh, yeah, she kind of is a shit. Oh, well. Yeah. I, I have to surrender to this. I really like Grief Bacon. I like the way yeah. Helena Fitzgerald writes a lot. She's just a good, really, really good writer. Interesting. Always interesting. Always full of ideas and images. Yeah. And, oh, Tom Skoka's Indignity is one of my all-time favorites. I love that that newsletter. Tom Skoka is hilarious. And whenever you're kind of like, uh, you know, what's, uh, you know, you're reading about some muddy issue and you can't decide how to even parse it. Tom Skoka always has just the smartest, most kind of thoughtful, balanced, cut through the bullshit sort of take on things. He's just a smart, smart dude, a great writer. I like him a lot. He's good. Yeah, that one is essential. I feel like that's right up there with Today and Tabs as far as processing the world with a smart person by your side with a good sense of humor. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the time and the, your forthcomingness. And thanks for writing on Substack. Thanks for your books. Thanks for your work as Ask Polly and everything else. Um, and thanks for joining us on The Active Voice. Thank you so much, Hamish. It was really enjoyable to talk to you. Heather has two Substack newsletters. You can find Ask Polly at www.ask-polly.com and Ask Molly is at askmolly.substack.com. See you next week. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D. Dot substack.com. Dot